Hey, Jay, welcome back to the Limitless Grid podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back. Um, so one thing, I think it has sold more than 2 million copies and it has resonated with 3 million. Yeah, over the holidays, we topped 3 million copies worldwide. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it was a nice holiday present. It's huge. And um, and I have read it multiple times. Like, Why do you think this book has resonated with so many people? Well, I'd like to think that we did a good job with the content. Um, I also think, I have a theory about books that sell millions of copies. I think that some of it is the job of the writer and how they communicated the message. And some of it is what's happening in the world. And I feel like this book came out in 2013, right? This was last year was our 10th anniversary year. It's not a new book and it still sells hundreds of thousands of copies a year. And I think it's because I think 2008 or 2007 is when the iPhone launched. I kind of think that, um, like I knew a lot of people that got a Palm Pilot or whatever in the early 2000s, but they were kind of at the fringes of my world. They were like very serious salespeople. Or they were in stocks or in tech. But like sometime around 2008 or 2009, like high school students were walking around with smartphones. And I feel like this idea of I'm at school, I'm at work, I'm at home, all got blended together in terms of how we experience our life in a matter of about three or four years. And we're not meant to adapt that quickly. And so I kind of feel like the book resonated because so many people were seeing the combination of all of the opportunities that technology opened up and also kind of the sense of overwhelm at all of the stuff that could come at them as well. And so that's my theory. And I could go through multiple bestsellers and tell you why I thought they also took off. Um, first, I think the authors did a great job, but I also think they somehow tapped into the zeitgeist of the world at that moment. There was a problem that their book showed up at the right time, uniquely capable of solving. And I think our book is about overwhelm. And that's why people see that book and they go, one thing, I want to know what the one thing is because they feel overwhelmed constantly. That's so true, especially in today's era where we all are competing for attention. How many inboxes do you have to check now? I've got to check LinkedIn every now and then. I've got my Facebook messages. I've got my Instagram DMs. I've got people direct messaging me on Twitter. And of course, I've got my personal email account and my work account. Like just the number of places that we have to just be present at all has multiplied a lot in the last few years. What are the steps that you think that somebody needs to take to be more disciplined? If you want more focus, get clear about what's important to you. So what actually matters? Where do you need to be investing your time? Who are you becoming and why is that important? I don't think many people are very clear about any of those questions. I think that they woke up on January 1 and they had been kicking around some ideas for a New Year's resolution or a health goal. And they get the idea of goals, but those goals are usually connected to nothing more than a period of time, usually a year or less. And they're not part of the bigger vision for their lives. And so I think real clarity comes from knowing 
that the next step is connected to the one after, and it's actually going in a direction that matters to you. And I think we do a good job of helping people line up those dominoes in the book in a simple, practical way. Like we call it goal setting to the now, but like, how do you know if someday you hope to be a best-selling author or um, an executive at a drug company or an award-winning programmer? I don't know, like an entrepreneur, like you name the dream. It's going to take four or five years. Like, how the heck do I behave this week? And because nobody has a system for doing that, they just say, well, what should I do this week? And when you ask the question going forward, there's an infinite number of options. If you're working backwards from a goal, there's usually very few choices and sometimes only one. It's a very different strategy for how you approach your life. And I really find it interesting when you mention like system for doing it, because we have goals and then we are very motivated about that goal. And we read a book like The One Thing where it says just focus on that one thing. And as a result, like everything just takes care of itself, right? How do you create a system where you stick with that system so you are able to focus on that big picture goal, but also take those steps to continue progressing in? That's a great question. Like most people say, oh, um, look at Shristi. Um, she's so productive. And they see that, but that's the tiny piece of your life that lives above the surface. And in our theory, like productivity comes from a great sense of your priorities. And priority comes from purpose. So if you've ever known someone who was really mission driven, like they had a big vision and they were clear about it, those people tend to have a very directed sense of priority. They knew what they should say yes to and no to. And so like, that's the process and it takes time. So that's it. Like I take comfort in a story. Uh, there's a guy named Jonathan Haidt, I believe is how you say his name. And he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. A small boy, a writer is writing a giant elephant. And the author asked, is there anything that 40 pound kid could do to actually force the elephant to go where the elephant doesn't want to go? And the answer is obviously the laws of physics say no. You know, four ton beast, 40 pound child. If the elephant wants to go somewhere, the boys all long for the ride. And the metaphor was the writer is our brain and the elephant is our heart. And so the elephant is always going where ultimately it chooses to go. The key is, can we connect the rider to the elephant so they're on the same page? And when I thought of this, I'm like, I'm looking up, we're writing this book, we're researching it for years. And I'm like, here I am in my 40s. I'm pretty clear about some of my big values, but I don't have a sense of purpose. I don't have a purpose statement. If anything, that felt kind of grandiose to me. It, it's like, who am I to have a purpose statement? Um, but then I took comfort in the fact that the elephant knows where it's going. So even if I don't know the destination, there should be clues in my past, right? Where was I engaged? Why did I take this job? Why have I stayed at this job? What drives me to do those things? So little introspection can get you going. And we've invested a lot of energy in the years since we published the book. And getting there faster. 
Um, we now have a core values exercise that we do with people. In about 30 minutes, I can walk you through a process that would help you identify your top three core values. And in our kind of the way we talk about values, that's a gateway to your purpose. The things that you hold most dear, like for me, it's um, impact, family, and abundance. And I've defined what those mean to me, right? Impact, obviously, making a difference. Family is not just my nuclear family. It is my family. It is my closest friends. And it is also my business partners. There are some relationships I know that matter far more to me. And I would have deep regrets if I didn't hold them at the center of my life. And then abundance is like, I don't want to do stuff that just benefits me. I want to create abundance in the world. And I know I make decisions based on those three values. So my trick is if someone says, hey, will you do X? It kind of needs to be a nine out of 10 on all three of those. Um, and that became a way for me to get there faster. Am I at least making value-driven decisions? Because those mean that I'm honoring the elephant, even if I don't know the destination. Because I've lined up three dots. You can line up two dots and draw a line through, line through them every single time. Three variables, they have to be aligned for you to do that. So um, all of this to say, the pursuit of a big goal, the people who are aware and can articulate it, who maybe are unaware and can't articulate it, I believe they're often driven by something far deeper than just the outcome of the goal. It means something to them. Um, it, it, it is tapped and connected to their values or their sense of purpose. And I think that's how we stick to it. And that's also why you see a lot of people chase hollow goals. As soon as they get them, they quit. And money is yeah, often so the place yeah. card. Oh, I just want to be rich. So true. And the moment oh, yeah. they hit their number, they stop working. Or they, they plateau and they stop growing. Whereas people who are chasing a bigger vision... They often, and they'll, we all hit plateaus, but they often are much more driven to get out of that comfort zone and get back on a path to something more meaningful. So that's a very complicated answer. I'm sorry about that. But it's the heart of it is if you can tap into your purpose, your sense of purpose or your values, if you can make a deeper emotional connection to that journey, you're far, far for more, more likely to keep it up. And we also know from the book that in the interim, you can just take it one activity at a time and build habits around doing the things that will take you there. And the moment something becomes habitual, it takes a lot less energy to do it. I think there's so much in that statement. I feel like I want to go step by step. But something that you said that really resonated with me is like when you have superficial goals, the moment you achieve that goal, you just feel empty. And like, because you are not following where the elephant wants to go. And for, you know, a lot of people, I think they choose a job based on money or based on status. And and once they get that money, once they get that status, they are really miserable, but they don't know what kind of questions that, that they can ask themselves so they can find their purpose or, you know, go in the right path. So if someone who has already committed years of their life following the wrong path, what steps can they take to go towards the right path? Well, we share this very late in the book, The Five Regrets of the Dying. The dying. 
And it was uh, a book by a hospice nurse named Bronnie Ware. And the number one regret of people on their deathbeds was that they failed to live their own life. They were living someone else's. There are people who chase hollow goals. And that is like, and, and sometimes it's for good reason. If you didn't grow up with very much, getting to a certain level of financial comfort, I'm not going to call that hollow. But it's also not meaningful beyond the achievement of it. We're comfortable now. We don't have to worry about grocery money. We can we have a car. We can take a vacation. Like there is something to say for that. So I don't want to knock that at all. Um, but at the same time, there are people that just arbitrarily say, "Well, I just want to be a millionaire, or I want to be a billionaire, or I want to." You fill in the blank, and that's much more about what they believe the world will think of them when they get there. Um, Morgan Housel is one of my favorite writers. And he shares, um, he's a financial writer, that he was a valet at a very expensive club and he parked a lot of Ferraris and stuff like that. And he's, his acknowledgement was a lot of people go to all the trouble to drive this fancy, expensive car because they think the world will think they're cool for driving that car. And he goes, the reality is when someone says, sees you driving a red Ferrari down the street, they don't think, wow, he looks cool in that car. They think, wow, I would look cool if I was in that car. They don't care about you. And so there's this idea of chasing external validation, which there is, they call that the hedonic treadmill, right? The moment you get to this level, it takes about six months for that to just become boring and normal, right? And it goes both ways. You can become a paraplegic and you think, oh my gosh, you'd be so depressed. Well, after about six months, their happiness goes to about the same place that a person who won the lottery would be six months later, even though their outcomes were the opposite spectrum. One person won millions, the other person lost the use of their arms and legs. The hedonic treadmill says that there is no kind of incentive out there, this goal that you're going for that's about material stuff that you won't just get used to and become normal, right? The last category is I'm living someone else's life. My dad wanted me to be a doctor and I became a doctor. Um, everyone expected me to become an attorney because I was so good at law or blah, you fill in the blank. We all know people that are living their mother's, their father's, their husband, their wife's life. And um, those are the people who have just tremendous, tremendous regrets. And so my advice to them would be, it's never too late to change. Um, if you have gotten really comfortable based on the lifestyle that you chose by mistake, and one, give yourself grace, because the fact that everybody listening to this can think of probably more than one person that is not living their life. You know them, you love them, but they're probably not living their life. They're doing it for the wrong reasons, but they can't see it. Um, that means it's a lot more common than we talk about. So one, give yourself some grace. And two, um, it's never too late to make a plan to make a transition. And the, the book is a great place to start for me, right? Like I, I, I've known people that were locked into career paths that wanted to career, to change careers. And they could not just stop earning income. They had to somehow essentially do two one things until they earned the right to switch. And if you're willing, if it matters that much to you, like I need to get out of this trap I've created for myself, you'll do it. 
Um, Toni Morrison, the author, if I'm not confusing her, I think it's Toni Morrison. Um, she was a single mom. She was an editor in New York. She dreamed of being a novelist. And she's a single mom of two kids. And her rule was very simple. For her to get her writing done, she had to do all of her personal writing work before one person said mom in her house. So she got up very early. And when the kids went to bed, she didn't stay up that much longer. She knew that she had to go to bed in order to get up early enough for her to write her novel. It would also be her ticket to freedom. And that was many years of that. So I'm not going to say it's um, always possible um, or probable. It is always possible. Um, but you have to have some amount of grit, right? This is about the Limitless Grit podcast. You have to have some grit to go through that transition and acknowledging it, giving yourself some grace. A lot of people don't feel like they had a choice or they weren't leading their own life because they weren't sure what they wanted. And someone really persuasive showed up and said, I think you'd be great at this. And you were flattered and you went for it. That describes like a lot of people's lives. So one, just don't beat yourself up and then just say, I think I need to make a change. And here's the last thing I have to say about this. You don't have to be absolutely clear about where you will go to know that you need to change the path you're on. Think about it. If you knew someone that was in an abusive relationship, they don't need to wait to find the right relationship to leave the abusive one. It's the same with the career path. It's not honoring your values. It's not honoring where you need to go in your life. So like you don't have to have everything figured out, but you probably, if you're supporting a family, if you've got kids, if you've got debt to pay, you may have created a lifestyle that has a certain amount of obligation and you'll have to be creative, find mentors, get coaching to make that transition. And I want to shut up because that was a heavy, heavy question you just asked. I don't know that a lot of people have asked me that question. Um, and that, that gets me excited, right? 11 years into the journey, getting a brand new question that's very significant that could help people. I want to make an impact. If someone's hearing that, I want, to, I want them to know what to do next. So thank you. Of course. And I think it's a little bit personal too, like having everything you want, achieving everything you ever wanted, and then not feeling fulfilled. <clears throat> I think that's the worst feeling then. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you might have a career where you're making $300,000, but then you're thinking, you know, I'd rather make $20,000 and do something else. If you're doing what you love, if you're doing what you truly love, what makes your heart sing, your happiness won't be just about the income. There's two ways to be wealthy. Wealth, I describe wealth, we wrote a book called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor about this, is having the passive income to finance your mission in life without having to work. So if I have enough income not to work, there's two ways to get there. Create lots and lots of income, right? Which is what almost everybody thinks of, or you can live like a monk. There are people with no income that walk around this world and are happy and blissful. I'm personally not going to be that person because like, I like to indoor plumbing. I like all of those things, right? I'm not, maybe I would, but I, I, I like a certain level of conventional pleasures and comforts. But like my wife and I, we don't buy fancy cars. We don't trade up a house every year. Um, 
we go on the occasional clothes spree, but like, I also am horrible at bumping into doorways and tearing up my clothes, but I'm not like a fashion person. I actually don't like to shop, but I will like spend a little bit of money there. Like we spend most of our money on travel and food. So like our actual lifestyle costs have been capped for a long time. So like, I don't want to say like, I'm somewhere in between, but wealth to me is having enough that you don't feel the pressure, right? You're there, but most people just keep moving the goalpost. They just move them. As soon as they get to the finish line, they move them ahead. That is so true. I want to get back to my previous question and I want to ask another concept from the book. So, you know, in the book, you talk about the concept of domino effect. And I personally think it's super powerful and we have used that in our lives as well. But for someone who doesn't know what that is, like how can they use domino effect to create momentum in their life? So um, one of the top objections to the idea of the one thing is this idea that like, I mean, people, we can document it. Like nobody has just one thing, nobody. And the acknowledgement to that is yes, that's true. Um, But at any given moment, you do have to focus on one thing because you can only think about, focus on, give attention and time to one thing at a time. Um, so like, how, how does that work if I want to do big things? And there's all of this stuff that has to happen. And so I usually will ask if I'm doing a keynote or something like, is everybody here as a child or maybe as an adult lined up dominoes? And if you put them just close enough together, and set them up just right. When you knock over the first one, what happens? The second and the third one gets toppled down. Right. And so part of the game of the one thing is figuring out is what's the first domino and how can I line up as many possible behind it so that I'm doing fewer things with more effect than more things with kind of side effects, right? burnout, stress, like I'm trying to do it all at once and I'm multitasking my way through the day. And we use Pareto's principle, right, on kind of steroids for figuring that out. Of all the actions you could take, which would be the thing that would be the most impactful in making progress towards your goal? And most people know the answer to that. I didn't know that when we wrote the book. Most people know the answer and they actually feel guilty because they're so busy and overwhelmed. They, they are not giving it the time they need. Oh, I need to be a writer. Well, what's one thing that you could commit to every day that would help you be a writer? Well, I should write every day. Well, why aren't you? And it's probably because they didn't ask the question or they just aren't ready to make that commitment yet. So figuring out like the, the key is going as small as possible. And it feels so contradictory that we think big and we want to start by acting small. And the key there is we want to tap into this power of momentum and habit building that if we wake up every day and say, look, instead of starting with 10,000 steps, I'm just going to every day put on my walking shoes and I'm going to call that victory until I get in a habit of putting on my walking shoes and I'm going to take a walk. If I just walk to the kitchen and get a cup of coffee, victory. If I walk 10,000 steps, victory. But now I'm building the habit of becoming the kind of person that as soon as they get out of bed, they go for a walk. That goes farther than most people estimate. So we could go down a lot of paths here, but 
you look and study the lives of the most successful people, they're often mastering and repeatedly doing very basic things that are fundamental for the success in their field. If they're a writer, they're writing every day. If they're a programmer, they're coding every day, right? Like what are the, the handful, if they're in sales, they're making outbound lead generation. Like I could go through a lot of professions, don't know all of them, but there's usually a one thing associated with the people in any industry that are absolutely regularly and repeatedly knocking it out of the park. And it's usually not more than three or four things that they do that everybody else doesn't consistently do. If you were hoping I would recite the number of dominoes to get to the moon, I might be able to do that from memory, but I don't have the book in front of me. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned about the Pareto's principle. For those who don't know what Pareto's principle is, can you talk a little about it? Oh, thank you for being an advocate for your listeners. That's great. Um, I did not think about that. Vilfredo uh, Pareto was an Italian economist who observed a long time ago that 80% of the wealth in Italy was held by 20% of the people. Not much happened with that information until much later on when um, a quality control engineer was exposed to the same information. And he immediately realized like, oh, um, 80% of the manufacturing defects come from 20% of the process flaws. Like he immediately thought There's, this is something more than just a coincidence. This might be a law of nature. So he popularized it. Um, his name was Joseph Duran. But the idea that it's now been popularized in a lot of business circles is this idea that 20% of your efforts will yield 80% of your results. And those numbers show up a surprising amount of time. But the easier way to think of Pareto's principle is the minority of what you do will give you the majority of what you want. And so asking the question, what are those essential few? What are the vital few that I need to be focused on? And how can I be relentless and consistent about those things? What strategies can one take to identify that 20%? Yeah, like I said, I, in my experience, most people know the answer. They don't need to get out a spreadsheet to figure it out. So um, we do an extra size. We call it Extreme Pareto. But you take your to-do list. What are all the things that you know you should be doing? Now, of those, like what are the handful that are absolutely essential to your success. Most people, if you say, put a star by the stuff that really matters, they will take a list of 25 and it'll drop to somewhere between three and five immediately. All the other stuff, like they're like, I can't not do this. Like I have to look at my email every, at least once or twice a day, right? There are things that are mandatory, but are also not important in the grand scheme. No one ever got promoted to CEO because they had the inbox zero, and a perfect meeting <laughs> attendance. Those are things that feel mandatory to some people, but aren't actually part of the formula for big success, right? So, um, of course, you laughed and I lost my train of thought now. Oh, no. Where was I going? The, <laughs> how do we identify the 20%? So you list it out, you narrow it down to the essential, and then I usually ask the follow-up question, if I could only do one of these things this week or today, to get the biggest impact, which would it be? And this is where people might be like, okay, I don't know if it's number one or number two. Who cares? 
like you've really narrowed it down to the two most important things. Most people do know the one and say, great. The very first thing that you do that day is address and give as much time to that number one as you can. And when you've got that box checked, then you can say of the remaining three to four, which of these would be the number one thing now? Well, that becomes your number two. And then you ask the question after that's done, what would be number three? But that's how you get to a very tight list of what I would call 20% items. They're the things that absolutely matter the most. And you've got them in an, a sense of priority. I love doing this exercise when I'm overwhelmed. I recently did it like literally last week when I was trying to build a business plan for one of our businesses this year. And I was just kind of overwhelmed in all the directions we could go. I did an extreme Pareto and I just said, let me just start by, there's all of these ideas. Which ones do I believe to be real 20 percenters? And it wasn't that many items. It was actually just five. And I took pages of notes and then I started with the construction of those five in the right order and then built a business plan around the priorities for making those five things happen. And it just was like, boom, weeks of wandering in the wilderness got figured out in two weeks because I just wasn't following my own process. It happens. My kids love pointing it out, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what kids are for. That's right. I feel like a lot of people don't do it, including myself, because doing extreme Pareto takes a lot of willpower. And sometimes when you are overwhelmed or exhausted, you don't have the energy to like go through 20 different options and then pick the best one. Yeah. I think sometimes people let their life get to a place where they're effectively in fight or flight mode. They've gotten to this place like a, 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 a triage nurse in a battle zone where they're just looking at all the patients in the waiting room and saying, who can I save next? And that's great for a triage nurse in a battle zone. It's not great to live every day of your life that way. So I look up at people who talk about, we talk about time blocking. When you know what your one thing is, put it on your calendar. Just you and your goal, this activity, I'm going to write three pages of my novel. And I might delete them tomorrow, but I'm going to do my three pages. And this is when I'm going to do it. Makes you about three times more likely to do it. Just that simple act of putting it on your calendar and then protecting it. And so like, I love this because when I'm overwhelmed, if I just have a little bit of time, and sometimes I have to get up early or stay up late, I have to find time where I'm not in that triage mode where I can take a deep breath and say, all right, I got to look at this list. Um, I have a coach. So every two weeks, I have to show him my priorities. And he'll be the first one to say, "It's like, there's way too many things on that list, Jay. How can we narrow this down? But you have an accountability coach? Yes. Oh, how long have you had for? Probably 13 or 14 years. Oh, wow. Oh. Yep. I'm paying as much as I've ever paid for one right now. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's not like you get to a place where you, your success means you know everything and you don't need a coach. If anything, most success is like a set of stairs. You find out what you need to do. You figure out how you need to do it. And that catapults you to this new level. 
And then you look up and go, holy crap, I don't have the skills for this level. And you have to go through that process again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And that's called professional growth. But like if you were a VP and you suddenly are sitting in the CEO chair, yes, they're both senior executive jobs. You have to manage a budget. But the psychological difference between the buck stops with me and there's someone that could that if I am lost, I can turn to is a very different journey. And so I just think people underestimate that. And I mean, we talk about it in the book. I preach it. I am part owner in two different coaching companies. I believe in it in the in the fiber of my being. And if you study really successful people, they won't just have a coach. They have often have multiple coaches. One of my favorite books on the topic of mastery was uh, a book by George Leonard called Mastery. And it's about his journey. I believe it's either Aikido or Judah. But he looks at a lot of different fields and he talks about people go, aren't you bored? You're just doing the basics again and again and again. But he goes at a certain level, the swimmer who's going through the water, yes, they're doing the breaststroke, but they're just paying attention to how their pinky finger is held against their hand. Like they're paying attention to a level of minutia that people who weren't at that level of mastery could even be aware of. Most people think that, oh, it must be boring. But I do think as you go through those different levels, your awareness opens up and you see a whole different, you, you see the world differently. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I wanted to talk about when you mentioned about system and I wanted to talk about time blocking that you had mentioned before. Uh, like, do you block consecutive chunk of time or do you block like four hours throughout the day? Because you mentioned in that book that to master something, you have to give at least four hours a day doing that one thing. So how do you go about blocking that time? Um, it depends on what I'm doing. So the thing that gets the biggest blocks of time in my world are writing days with Gary. So we have um, a schedule. We have our annual event. I don't know when someone's going to listen to this, but right now I'm about six weeks away from our annual convention. And last year at that event, I was on stage for about 17 hours. And Gary probably was on stage more. But a lot of our writing days this time of year are about preparing the right messages for that really important event for us. So he literally just reached out and like on text message with me and the other person who writes with us. And we kind of agreed that it's going to be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we're blocking from 10 o'clock to four o'clock, which is a giant block to take out of your day. And I had anticipated this with my assistant and we had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday blocks. So now I'm trying to figure out how can I move the stuff that I had scheduled for Fridays to Tuesdays, but we'll figure it out. But those, that's the first thing that I have to manage on my calendar is the writing time. And then all the other meetings hopefully fall on the outside of those. Um, back when we were writing the one thing, we would either write from 10 to three or from one to four, depending on what else was happening in our world. And the only thing that we're kind of violating when we do it in the afternoon is that we're not getting our first energy. And so like if our world was smaller, if Gary wasn't the CEO and founder of the largest real estate firm in the world, and right, we, we have 
very big worlds and a lot of people who look to us for answers. Um, I think we would start at, I mean, I'm up at 5.30 a.m. every day. Like I start my days early. I would probably be ready to get in the writing room at 8.30. And that would be the first thing. I don't think it's practical for us. When we do, there's too many people that knock on our door and say, I just, I can't start my day without the answer to this question. So from a practical standpoint, we usually start at 10 or 12-ish or one. And then, but it's usually a four hour block or larger. If you looked at my calendar, probably because of where I am in the, my life right now, Ideally, only about 70% of the time would be blocked. I would have white space for opportunities. Right now, because we're leading up to this event, I would probably say, I've only got five hours free this week during business hours. So from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m., it looks like a quilt, a very, without any holes in it. And that's just the season I'm in right now. Um, but ideally, I would have at least an hour to an hour and a half every day that was kind of unstructured because I believe this is what we were talking about earlier about that. How do you do the extreme Pareto exercise? Having some white space as an entrepreneur, as an achiever is huge. That's where a lot of your creativity comes from. That's where your breakthroughs, that's where your perspective, you can sit back and look and say, I did all this today. Did this matter? Do I need to act differently tomorrow? But if we're just run, run, running until we have to go pick up the kids and make dinner and do all the things, a lot of times we get trapped on a hamster wheel that it's hard to get out of. So earlier you mentioned your values that are primarily driven by growth and, and helping others, like family. contributing, family. Impact or, is know, my number abundance. one. Mm. Um, it used to be family, but, um, it was weird of a year ago or so I started realizing I was making a lot more decisions primarily based on the impact that decision would have than whether or not I would absolutely be home for dinner that night. And, um, well, we're about six months away from having our youngest child graduate from high school. We're about to be empty nesters. So I was like, okay, maybe it's just the season I'm in. Um, when you have teenagers that are going off to college, like I don't see Gus, but on the weekend sometimes. And Edward, who's still in high school, like I see him at dinner time, and that might be it because <laughs> he's just in a different place right now. And it's just a season I'm in. So it, they can shift. I'll just say that. But for me, it's impact, family, and abundance. And um we just got an exercise that you do in one of our classes where we have people examine, I think we have 140 um, values sourced from psycho psychology. Like there's an inventory of human value systems that you can find online. And we have people go through there and progressively mark off more and identify. And I actually, we created a deck. Um, and is it in the website where we can do the value exercise? So this is like on Amazon, the one thing core values deck. I, my friend that runs Best Self helped me make this. I had created a prototype and brought her to a coffee shop and said, do this exercise for me and tell me if you think that we can turn this into something. And she loved it. But basically, whether you're doing it on a piece of paper or you're doing the cards, 
the goal is to get to three and three only, and then have them ranked one, two, three. And it usually doesn't take more than 30 minutes. Um, but every time we come together as a community, you know, um, every year we'll, I'm always amazed at people who I know for a fact did it with me the year before that want to do it again, because it's like a snapshot. Like right now, what are the things that I am holding most dear and does the way I'm investing my time reflect that or not? And that's a big question. You can't ask it unless you know what's important to you though. Uh, I wanted to ask about, because I, I have your newsletter and I read it uh, every time you send it. And a topic that you talk about is the couple's goal setting or goal settings that you go to. Um, I wanted to ask, like, how often do you go to a couple's goal setting and like, what kind of questions do you ask your wife or like, what do you guys talk about? You're in the market now. Watch out. I might be selling you something. <laughs> so um, the, my wife and I have been doing this for now 17 or 18 years. And it was something that started when she had her second baby. They were 16 months apart and decided to leave her professional career and be a stay-at-home mom for her first few years. And it was a lot of change. One, being parents of two kids in diapers was very hard. Um, and she just came to me and said, I, I want to get away and get on the same page. We'll get a babysitter. She downloaded a bunch of questions from like Oprah.com, you name it. And we had like two pages of questions and we got away from our family, got away from the duties and spent some time talking through stuff that we didn't have time to talk about. And it was very impactful. And immediately people started asking us, would you share the questions? So I think until about 2016, we evolved our process and it, we started sharing a Word document and then it became a Google document and then it became a PDF with the schedule. Like we just kept building on what we started. And as I was writing the one thing, we started incorporating the one thing into it as well. So um, around 2016, um, when we launched the One Thing Training Company, um, Jeff Woods, who was my partner at the time, really did want to have an event. He wasn't clear how to do it or what it could be. And we latched on to this process that my wife and I just like, we knew there was demand for it. We personally felt it was amazingly beneficial. And so we started facilitating one, which we still do every year. And this year we launched a virtual goal setting retreat on the one thing so that people who couldn't afford to get a plane ticket and go be in person um, could just do it virtually. I will say this um, for busy, productive people. Like I do think there's nothing replaces doing it in person because it's, it's really hard to put in the time if you're just by yourself, especially if you're at home. But, that said, if that's not in the cards, it's better to do one than to not do one. So I'll give you a really high level. Um, we have, uh, we call them the thought provoking questions. We ask questions about the stage of life we're in, the relationships that matter to us, how our health is doing, how our love life is doing, how we feel about our kids and in-laws like, you just check the boxes of all the sensitive topics that 
if you're in the day-to-day and you're ticked off at him because he didn't take out the garbage and he's ticked off at you because whatever, like you just named the daily slights that happen when you're married to someone, you can love someone and still be irritated at them. Like it's not always safe to cover the heavy stuff. You know, I'm really not satisfied with this part of our relationship. And sometimes it's just good. Like I love this part of our relationship, but it allows you to get on the same page about how you're going to handle money, right? Which is the number one reason couples fight is are we saving? Are we spending? Are we investing? Are we giving? Like there's all these choices with money and which one are we doing and when? And combining finances is a big move for a lot of people. So we cover all of those and then we set someday goals based on our someday goals. We set five-year goals based on our five-year goals is how we plan for this year. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to our podcast till now. I hope it added value in your life. And if it did, please subscribe to our channel. It will help us grow and bring more incredible guests. Thank you.